Pod, and welcome back to Adventurers Anonymous, the home of improvised fantasy fuck nuggetry. And this week, something a little bit special. We're going to do away with the storyline for one week and one week only and have a little chat with some of the cast and voices of the podcast. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to some of them. She's a mild-mannered software tester by day, foul-mouthed tiefling terror by night. Chanel Williams, the voice of Mort. Hello. Hello. Good morning, good evening, good night. This is weird because you're actually like three rooms away. But, you know, I'll pretend that you're on a different time zone. I, I can still get to you if needs be. It's probably very true. We've also got the bovine botherer himself, Chris Neal, the voice of Tatty Bojangles. How are you doing, sir? Shiny day to everyone. Top of the morning to you too. And finally, from the holodeck sauna simulation, we have Matt Durant, the voice of Belsia. Hello, I'm really glad to be here on the show today. And of course, we have one extra special guest that we can see and you can't because this is an audio medium. We have Digby, the biggest dog in the world. Digby! Say hello, Digby. Hey, Digby! Hi! Oh, there you go. We've got a rescue dog staying with us. We're fostering a dog called Digby, a beautiful patterdale who is getting everywhere and is currently taking pride of place on Squadcast. So this week we thought we would do things a little bit differently. We'd take a break from the storyline for just a little bit. You'll have to hang on to find out what happened after the big showdown with the monster from another dimension that Aristobulus inadvertently called into creation through his shite music. But instead, we thought we would throw down a few questions and answers so that you can get to know some of the cast better. Naturally, Lewis is away doing Lewis things. Actually, that's the first question. What the hell does Lewis actually do when he's not here? Um, he's a freelance. He's a freelance writer, copywriter. Freelance gigolo. Does he actually do that? For those who don't know, it's Lewis's band, um, Badly Torn Dagger. Airdrawn Dagger. Airdrawn Dagger. You, you sorry. know, the, the band, the really talented band who earn money playing gigs. And also, aren't they our theme tune? As someone who, as someone who commits so much time to self-promotion and, 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 and yet does his absolute damnedest to fuck up any kind of promotion <laughs> that we do for Airdrawn Dagger. Lewis doesn't need our promotion. Yeah. But those of you who do not know, our wonderful theme tune is recorded by the one, the only Airdrawn Dagger, for which Lewis, I believe, does something. He plays the triangle or something like that. But it's a very talented band. And we do highly recommend you run to your nearest music shop or Spotify and give them a damn good listen. Uh, thank you very much to Airdrawn Dagger for all of your support and sorry for at least two years worth of abuse. But yes, that's where Lewis is this evening. Also worth noting, we're having a bit of a cocktail special here. Uh, Chanel, what have you made us? Uh, I've made French martinis with berry um, and pineapple juice. It was going to be Chambord, but I went berry vodka instead because I'm a Croydon girl. And also, the, the next round is going to be topped up Buy some on top. I like the sound of this. The next round. We barely made it through the first round, and we are on to the next round. Right. Chris, what are you drinking? Wine. Is that the finest box wine? That's not a cocktail. No, it's in a glass, silly. <laughs> God damn it. Is that jam shed? No, it's not, actually. It's um, the bottle's all the way over there. I'm not going to go get it. Wow, that's a lot of effort for our listeners. The bottle is all the way over there. Right, Matt, you're some sort of heavy drinker. Are you straight neat vodka? What are you doing? This is a, a little concoction I like to call it. Vodka and Coke. Holy shit. It's nice to see you all got the notes about cocktails. 
What what are we calling a vodka and coke? Has it got an actual name? I was going to call it a like like a Cuba Libre. You could call it a Ukrainian Libre, Moscow Libre, Chavi Chaser. Uh, <laughs> no, hmm. right, Maud, rescue us from this. What's your first question? Um, I know you had a number of burning questions. I, I did, but you know the doctors cured that, so it's absolutely fine. <laughs> Broad spectrum antibiotics and a shower every morning. Just a good old tub of germany and we're fine. Um, Right. Scrapes right off after two days. My my first question would be: um, Let's let's start off with an easy one. Uh, what is everybody loves trash TV, like brain-numbingly trash TV? What is your character's epitome of trash TV? What would your character watch, or who would your character be in trash TV? Can I go first on this one? My trash TV isn't as much trash TV as just some weird shit I like to watch on YouTube. I've got a real penchant for metal detection videos. I don't know why. <laughs> There's a channel and shout out. I don't know what your name is, my friend, but you're majestic. It's called uh, Addicted to Bleeps, I think. And it's just basically this kind of hilarious agricultural style man who just wanders around digging shit up out the ground and commenting on it. And he, he does it all on his own with a GoPro, I want to say. It's not really communal TV. I don't think it's water cooler TV. It's not lean forward TV. His name is Chris. Yeah. He's always got a finger in his glove. Chris, on the off chance you've ever listened to this, and I know you probably haven't, do reach out to us. But yeah, addicted to bleeps, big fan of metal detection TV. I just like him watching, like, pulling ring pulls out of the ground. And occasionally it's a Roman coin. So that's my contribution. Chris is a metal detectorist, treasure hunter, musician, writer, and TV presenter. A fucking millennial, man. Absolutely. All right, that's me. <laughs> Sorry, that's quite highbrow. Uh, I don't know what show Tati would would uh, would watch. I can think what Belsia would watch, but I think Tati would watch like something with hunting and fishing. Like he'd be, uh, he'd get really into like outdoorsy shows. He'd get really into like Bear Grylls or something like that. Yeah, yeah. What's that really wanky thing on Bravo where Robson Jerome, no, um, Robson Green goes fishing? Probably called Robson Green goes fishing. I don't think it is. It's like extreme fishing with Robson Green or yeah. something like that. Chanel, you've got your fingers all over Google. Uh, I think it is Robson and Jerome go fishing. Oh, is it both of them? Yeah. Um, for those American listeners or anyone, I know we've got a large contingent of people who listen from Texas and also a little bit from Brazil and also Romania is coming up around the outside. Robson and Jerome, how are you describing that to so listeners? It is. Robson and Jim's Icelandic fly fishing adventures on ITV. And it's the actor and his best friends, Robson Green and Jim Murray, travel across Iceland in the fishing adventure of a lifetime. Currently, three episodes are available on ITV. Other channels are available. They are not. Not for this. Chris, what are you saying? Extreme fishing? He probably would watch something like Bear Grylls, but I think if I had to... I had to Americanize this a little bit more. I don't watch any Real Housewives shows, but I think... Who are you lying to? Look at your face. The character that he would be, because I know this character has to exist, um, is the one that probably spends a lot of episodes getting, getting, like, closet drunk. Like, literally just, like, sat in a closet getting drunk uh, on box wine, and then turns up at some point in, like, the middle of an argument and has been like somehow the the full on chess master of the entire season. 
somehow been manipulating everything behind the scenes. That is Brandy Granville. Uh, She was married to Eddie, who cheated on her with Leanne Rhymes. Listeners, if you're not acutely aware, Chanel has several skills in life. One of them is dog whispering, another is fine cooking, and the third is scandals. If you can name a celebrity, Chanel can tell you the year, time, place, and affair they have. And all names associated. It's pretty impressive. Mm. Elton John. Um, He currently has just settled a, where are we, 2022. In 2021, he settled a dispute that went to court with his ex-wife because she was the one who wrote, he wrote about Little Dancer. It was his ex-wife. And he said that he would always look after her. And then he fucked off and did not look after her. And so it took her up until 2021 to get the court, to get the case listened to in court. And then they settled out of court. And this year he has, three days ago, he was almost in a, a double plane collision because there were high winds and he was trying to get out of England when everybody else was just up home sitting there watching trees being blown across their lawn. And he decided that he wanted to go on a little cross-country jaunt. And there you have it. This week's episode, sponsored by Scandal. So, Tatty, or Chris, however you wish to be. I don't want to dead name you. Uh, that that was obviously Matt's interpretation of what your trash TV was. We took a meandering tour around Elton John's back catalogue of Scandals there. What's your trash TV? Wait, are we talking about me or Tatty? Well, you can break the fourth wall or not break the fourth wall. Depends how much wine you've drank. Not enough, apparently. Um, yeah, I think Tatty's would be something like Bear Grylls. He would get like weirdly into watching the survival elements of it. Um, and yeah, I would be a crazy drunk, hidden psycho from the Real Housewives. Bear Grylls. Never a massive fan. Sorry, Bear, if you were planning on sponsoring this. I'm sorry, buddy. Not so, just a question. Wouldn't Belsia? Wouldn't he be into, like, that American uh, survival kind of prepper programs? You know, where they're going through the Adelaide, like, and they've got, like, a secret underground layer where, like, filled with cans of beans. Yeah. Like, doomsday preppers, yeah. Yeah, he might He might be. I don't know. I think he'd, he'd, he'd either go he'd, – he might go for something like that, something that's, like – how to survive on your your wits in the in the I think Belsia would watch Britain's Got Talent um, or something like that, that, and then just get really really rowdy and really really excited for the uh, like the magicians, like the full on street <laughs> performers. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of irrational hatred of, of of like anyone with a with a dog or or wow, you, you what, really, whatever else you've watched a lot Britain's of that. I can tell. I can tell you and yourself in the fact you know that there's a dog that plays the flute and that's the only thing you know about Britain's Got Talent. Hey, Amanda okay. Holland doesn't play the flute. <laughs> ah. Ooh. Jesus Christ. Uh, Amanda Holland, oh. if you're listening, that was an alleged, um, an alleged, we, we don't need, we don't need the press. Um, I'm going for Ice Knife Truckers, maybe. That's, that's what I've got for Belsiar. Uh, living life on the edge. He's, uh, what about some sort of like magic show? Anyone old enough to remember the Paul Daniels magic show? It was 
seemed like the most exciting thing in the world when I was a kid. All of you are looking at me like I'm a lunatic here. Paul Daniels, tiny little magician with a wig, married to Debbie McGee. I think you might just be old. What first attracted you to the multi-millionaire Paul Daniels? <laughs> That's the greatest question ever. What first attracted you to the multi-millionaire magician Paul Daniels? His wand. I don't know, maybe ghost adventures or ghost ghosty things. Ghost hunters. Ghost hunters, yeah. Ghost hunters. Do you remember Annette yeah. from Blue Peter? She went into ghost hunting. Hang on, when you say a vet, do you mean someone who survived the war, somebody who puts the animals down when Blue Peter's finished with them, or a vet Cooper? A vet Cooper. Right, good, just clarifying. Oh no, a vet Cooper is the shadow home secretary of the United Kingdom, not her. <laughs> the vet Fielding and Derek Corum. John Leslie got a bit handsy, didn't he? Uh, no, he got a bit cokey. Oh, he got a bit cokey. Okay, again, allegedly. John, if you're out there listening to us, get your lawyers. That's a legendary. It could be a bit Pepsi, not just a little bit cokey. Mm. Got to say that other brands are available. Right. So that covers off you two. Chanel, this is your question. What have you got? What's Maud listening to? It's got to be the Real Housewives of Port de Mali or something like that. Isn't it? Uh, following up from Tati, Maud is blind, ratchet, drunk on Lambrini. And she is always falling out of uh, really, really high-end karaoke places. Like, we're talking, like, karaoke places that have not just bar nuts, but cashews, like salt and pepper cashews on the side. Holy shit. Yeah. And she always sings uh, WAP. And she has all the parts to it. Oh, Cardi B. Sorry, I thought you meant... Remember when your phone was WAP-enabled? Long before 3G, there was WAP. Don't remember WAP? When your phone was WAP-enabled? There we go. Okay, okay. So a bit of a karaoke artist. Yeah. That's Maud, right? Yeah, it's like complete trash panda. Just falling out of the karaoke place. And then, like, in the highest of hills as well, like, Strover Hills. And, and then staggering into a decent kebab place. The kebab place is higher class than the karaoke place. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea that there's just the leg of an owl bear spinning on a spit, <laughs> uh, just being shaved by a man from uh, Nicodranus. Right, good. Okay, well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground there. We've learned a little bit about something, something. Think Vicky Patterson. I've met her. I met her at a charity event. She brought, she, oh, I can't say that for legal reasons. She uh, was not in her right self. And was was a little bit woozy and was playing with a dog. I've actually met her. Right. Uh, good. Right. On to our next question, which may be easier for some of you than others, depending on how long you've been doing this podcast for. Who has been your favourite NPC? Which, for those of you who don't know, is non-player character. So, who is your favourite background character who you have met in? the entire arc of the Adventurers Anonymous storyline, which for listeners has been going on about a year earlier than the episodes were going on. So some of the people referenced here may not appear in any of the episodes. I might be conflating two characters, but the woman selling beads who stole Hanush's money. That was episode one of the podcast. No, that was, that was, Pre-podcast. That was episode one. Way pre-podcast. Oh, that was episode one of the campaign. So 
to give it a bit of color. I think she was the first person that we met. She literally like we we got, we got off the boat in we we got off the the bus in Port de Mali and and Hanash was like, "Oh, I'm going to go talk to this woman." And she was she was selling beads and then she just stole all his money. That's right. Uh, it was a cart. I believe you'd you'd blanked a ride on the back of a farmer's cart down to Port de Mali. Um, just for a bit of backstory, if anyone is interested, this started off as a one shot that took so fucking long to play because Chris, Chris, Matt and Lewis decided to explore every dark alley of a sewer that it turned into a two shot. And then by all accounts, they had some fun and we turned it into a campaign. So the first campaign episode, they got on a cart. Aristobulus had gone missing. I want to say even in the first ever episode, Lewis was missing. I want. We started truly as we meant to go along. He started, if I remember, by going missing, he turned up on a fisherman's trawler, and the fisherman was called Captain James P. Gibberstock. Yeah, and we met them at a, we met them at a, a bar, I think. And the first thing they did is step off the back of a farmer's cart who had given them a lift to Port Damali, and they were robbed blind. So that's your favourite character, Matt? Yeah. Even though she has no backs. That's the best, and then it was all downhill from there. Okay, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Chris, what about you? Um, I don't know. I think maybe maybe my favourite one that we got to spend a decent amount of time with was Brannigan the Brown. Um, <sighs> Brannigan the Brown or Nigel the Troll? Um, <laughs> Nigel the Rock. I think, if I, had to, I think if I had to pick one that we met but didn't get to spend a lot of time with, I um, can't remember what his first name was, but I know, what his, I know his surname was Thunder Blossom. The Tabaxi Chief oh, of the Nightmare yeah. Clan. Um, we found out some weird background information about him that, like, I really wish that we we'd got to like have an actual conversation with him. For the sake of the listeners, I think that's episode one or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who goes missing? Theolian. Somebody get. Oh, Theolian gets kidnapped, and they have to go to the Nightback Clan, who are a gang of Tabaxi Nightcrawlers who have a treetop village and actually episode one one of the greatest shames of this podcast for anyone who's actually listening is that for some reason we decided to start it halfway through a sort of pitched fight with tatty halfway up a ladder tatty literally starts the episode halfway up a rope ladder and there's no backstory which is either great like it throws you into the action or it's a bag of dicks like everyone scratches their head wondering what the fuck's going on but yeah that and the leader of the tabaxi is called um Something Blossom. What's it called? Thunder Blossom. Thunder Blossom. And Thunder Blossom had a blunderbuss. That That's is a the blunderbuss. Fucking tongue twister. That Thunder Blossom's that blunderbuss. Has. Thunder Blossom had a had a Thunder Blossom had a blunderbuss, which uh, after he died, I think Lady spoilers. If you got this way, probably listen to the episode. Lady uh, dispatched him, and Hanash kept his blunderbuss, which is a nice callback. Oh. Also, do you remember in that? That was one of the first ever 4K maps I ever did for this ungrateful bunch of retrobates. And on it, on Thunder Blossom's bed, I left lots of little Easter eggs. And if you look on Thunder Blossom's bed, you might still be able to find this on social media somewhere. He had a paddle and he had an aubergine. Yeah, we we definitely made sure to reference those. Yes. Didn't a character beat someone to death with an aubergine? I think that was a bit. I think that was a bit later. Wasn't that in the like pitched fight with the um, with the goblins? Wasn't that what Lewis did? Or didn't he like hide no, there was a there was a cart full of courgettes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um was that pre podcast? That was pre podcast, yeah. wasn't it? Um that was definitely pre podcast. Okay, so we've got Thunder Blossom, we've got the lady on the cart, 
Chanel, who's your favourite NPC? I'm going to say, um, it was before my time, so I can't say it, but I love the idea of Nigel the Rock Um But I quite, I had an affinity with the, was he a, was he a dwarf? I don't know what his name was, but he was thrown up a bridge. Oh, um, Jpeth. He was disrespecting Lady and he was thrown up a bridge. Oh, no, you've conflated two things there. That's the second time we've used the word conflating. You held one of the dwarf and glass blades off a cliff and threatened him because he was disrespecting Lady. Um, Hanash threw a snowball at Belsiar, who backed up into a dwarf and knocked him off a cliff. His name was Jpeth, and he plummeted supposedly to its death. We've never actually found out. Why do you keep blaming us for his death, then? Yeah, why do you keep blaming Belsiar for his death? But... You, can't, you can't have it both you ways. Know, it to touch him. It's a game of tag. <laughs> Can I, um, we didn't ever get his name, but I wore his face as some kind of... Oh, that was one of the gnomes, I think. Yeah. yeah. One of Skull's gnomes, yeah. you He died and you peeled his face off and wore it as a face mask with your giant dick nose. So one of the things we should probably address on this podcast is, you know, we're having a little bit of cards on the table time here. You know, we're, we're um, being open and honest and this is a time of, oh, look, in an audio medium. Chanel's giving me the middle finger. It's the fact that Chanel's character has a giant dick nose. But when we paid good money to get her character drawn by the wonderful Ellen Vonith, uh, you opted not to get a dick nose. I, my exact words were, if I'm going to pay good money, it's not going to have a dick nose. Hmm. I think you kind of earned the dick nose, though. You you molested a fairy. I didn't molest him. There, there was no Jimmy Savile-esqueness about it. I, wow, that's I a strong reference. I stuffed him in a bottle and I shook him every time he got a bit salty. Is another way, do, you, do you even remember what his name was? Do you remember the guy you abused? Do you remember what his name was? Just Seamus. Just because he was Irish. Jesus Christ, that is very, very... You're on thin ice there. His name was Jacob Sugarplums. Wow. Oh, Sugarplums. Nobody liked Jacob Sugarplums. The first time the adventuring party ever met Jacob Sugarplums was in um, the ruins of Melasmere in a graveyard, and they heard an unholy singing in the darkness ahead of them. And what did you do, Bartia? I don't think I did anything to him, to be honest. I don't think you did. I, I think Matt might have. Do you remember what that was, now? I found him. You panicked and sent oh, out a gout yes. of flame yeah, in yeah, front yeah, of yeah. you into the darkness, and there was just this scream as yes. you set fire to a little fairy. And quite frankly, his life didn't get much better from there on in. Is he dead now? He did deserve it. He wasn't very nice to his kids. No, he's not dead now. Actually, ironically, in the episode that I'm editing that's coming out this week, because spoilers here, we, we're about five weeks ahead of what actually gets put out. Uh, he comes back. So um, he was in a bottle. Yes. And then um, Maud shook him out a lot, shook him about and abused him. And then when um, you were in the carriage with um, Simig, the turtle, he escaped. And before he fled off, he cursed Maud and gave her a ginormous dick nose because she rolled several natural ones. But in a twist of beautiful fate, he came back at the trial in Utherden yes. and was one of the accusers that was in the box against you. What he was doing after that, I can't tell you. I can tell you that much because that many episodes are out. See all of you are going on a walk down nostalgia lane here. I also liked the goat on the bridge. Oh, I thought there was yes. real pathos and uh, drama to that goat. Goat on a rope bridge. 
So the one where Tati went to try and rescue him and ended up hanging off a rope bridge holding on by his ankles. Hanash had to come and save him. Yep. Oh, who was, who was the other one I was thinking of? Um, the hunter guy, uh, that was looking for us in the, in the ruins of Melasmir. The guy that was wearing like animal pelts and stuff. He was called Rurden Staleblight. And he was a bailiff who worked on behalf of the dwarfs and the elves to try and track you down for your crimes against humanity. Except you kept on pissing off. He had poisoned arrows and he kept on shooting you all. Uh, he turned up in the prison cells underneath Utherdern. Mm. Um, for anyone who's never seen a picture of him, probably because we've never made any artwork, he is like, if you imagine a hunter covered in wolf pelts and furs with a bow and arrow and a tomahawk made out of wood and stone. He was a fairly terrifying-looking character who hunted them by day and by night. Um, he did a pretty shit job, didn't he? To be fair. Thank you very much. He just rolled badly. All right. For all other DMs out here, how many times have you written a beautiful character, given them nuance, backstory, a load of, you know, colour and depth, and then, you know, either your adventuring party thwart you or you just constantly roll natural ones and he turns out to be a bit of a wet squib. I wanted to I wanted to fight him. I thought we were gonna I thought we were gonna come to blows with him, but Well maybe you will it's not a damn squid. to say. <laughs> it is a damn squib, all right. <laughs> damn squid. Yeah, yeah, not even a squid. It's a squid. Let's move on to another question. Tell us something about your character that people might not know. So for instance, last time we did this, Matt decided to share with the world that he was pretty sure Belsiar was a virgin, which I think is bold <laughs> and also definitely dictated the way I thought about Belsiar. Actually, interesting fact before we get into let's start with Matt. Tell us about the Crocoborn. The Crocoborn are uh, a offshoot of Dragonborn who reside in whichever region of uh, uh, what, what continent are we on? Alexandria. Alexandria. <laughs> that is most like the American South circa 1880 and everyone everyone talks in a southern accent <laughs> um lives in big big mansions on on uh on fields of uh some kind of fantasy corn um i was gonna say i was gonna say on the bayou <laughs> on the bayou yeah it, it's kind of my it's kind of on the Mishmash of Florida, New Orleans. There's lots of mud, and the the the, the Crocoborn uh, live in big houses, drink mint juleps, say "Oh mercy me" and things so like that. So they sit on porches. Yeah, they sit on porches. Um, Stroking pigs, playing the banjo. <laughs> no, that's they that's sound a bit it. like. Well, now, oh, <laughs> so are we saying just for the sake of the listeners that? Belsia is a crocoborn. Yeah, so which is copyrighted. If anyone else, if I see that in anyone else's podcast or campaign, I'm coming for you. Yeah, I need to, I need to work out what being a crocoborn means. But yeah, he's 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 like a, a crocodile ancestry dragonborn. He does look and also sound from this that he needs his own cereal, like breakfast cereal. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> he needs to become a branded character. <laughs> Yeah, he'd be a, yeah, he would be on a box of cereal. Crock of sakes. Um, that's interesting. Do you think Belsiar can show real emotion? You know, just back to the crocodile tears. Like, <laughs> Belsiar's a guy who is awkward in some emotional situations. Some. 
So because he's a virgin, I think you're you're casting like character aspersions now. I think he's very the right the right crocodile lady. And then he's going to lay eggs. Well, she'll she'll lay lay eggs and he'll fertilize them. Is is the uh, the way? It's it's the croco way. This is how Beltiar talks about sex, as is the way. <laughs> as is the way among my people. That sounded very Mandalorian esque. Yeah, it's not <laughs> as is the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I feel like Beltiar is very good in prepared situations, like if he's giving a magic show because he can follow the pattern in his head, or right, yeah. Or if he if he has a chance to kind of get up in front of people and talk, he's fine. It's literally everything else he has a problem with: um, men, women, and children. Yeah, and gnomes, and and uh, fair enough. Yeah. That's interesting. He is a very interesting character. I do like him a lot, and I can definitely say going forwards, there's a lot of interesting storyline that sort of uncovers that we find out about him. Um, the idea of a sorcerer who's failed at his own industry and has turned into a children's party entertainer um, is just beautiful. Just someone who is born with such like innate magic power and then <laughs> instead of squandered it, just completely squanders it to go become a children's party <laughs> entertainer is fantastic. That's a great, great, great. What's that? There's nothing. Sorry, listeners. Chanel's currently shoveling fine food into the front of her face. What have we got there? Feta cheese, maybe some. Ooh. Heritage tomatoes. Marks and Spencer's mini pies, which mm, I am mini pies. Well done. This is quite majestic. I'm cutting in half and I am taking the finest Yorkshire blue cheese, putting <gasps> it on top. Wait, wait, wait for this. And then on top of that, I am putting Marks and Spencer's chili jam. And let me fucking tell you, it is something that absolutely food of the gods. Adventure Anonymous <laughs> podcast this week, sponsored by Gout. That's a proper like. Sponsored by wedding worthy canapes. That's yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Well, if that hasn't got you wet behind the gills, I don't know what will. Right. Chris, tell us an interesting fact about Mr. Bojangles. Um, I'm trying to think what hasn't been covered already. Um, tell us about when he was a boy. When he was no, that's just really depressing. Tatty, oh, wow. Tatty, everyone knows that Tatty is Tatty is a, a full-on sad boy. Um, right, other than meeting his wolf, when's the time he was happy? Um, probably when he first figured out he was he was good at archery. Oof. He came from a fairly broken home, and you know he he got out of there as, as quick as he could and went and joined the military. Um, and, um, that was when he figured out he was, he was actually pretty good at something and he had a, um, had a, had a decent place, um, which, um, obviously didn't turn out that great for him. Spoiler alert. Um, but, um, yeah, that was probably, that was probably like the first really like big moment in his life. I've got a question. Hmm. Did he hone in? So he came from, what did he say? A backwater village, like quite a yokely. Yeah. It was very much like a, you know, in like, old I, this is how i how i imagine it anyway you know like old western films or like in, in red dead redemption how you see those bits where there's like a full landscape and there's literally just like a house in the middle of nowhere he's, he's that was like his that was like his home so he was stuck with his mom and his pops yeah and a small house his, and his he didn't dad, get on with his parents his dad left very when he was very young or maybe even before he was born um and um, and his mum was uh, fairly abusive. Oh, so his home life was pretty shit. 
if it's not a spoiler, and feel free to, if you want to weave this into the storyline somewhere, just say no. Does he have any brothers and sisters? Uh, not that he knows of. Oh. Oh. He could have, like, Papa, like I said. Papa Bojangles might have sired some other. Yeah, like I said, he, he comes from a broken home, so he could have, could have half siblings. What's his dad's name? Is he called Barry Bojangles? Or? Bass. I'd not really, I'd not really thought of his, thought of his dad's dad name, really. Um, it could be that Bojangles was more of a, not a portmanteau. What am I thinking of? It could be that he added like his own surname because he, yeah, like a nom de guerre because he, um, because he came from a a broken home. Okay. Okay. He could have, he could, that could have been the name that he signed up in the military with. Something inconspicuous. In a really, really, in a really, really shit Han Solo esque origin story. They're going to be, they're going to be like, they're going to be like, oh, so, um, who are your people? I don't fucking know. Just put Bojangles. He said, he was about to say Bo, and then a bell rang. Yeah. Bojangles. <laughs> um, okay, that's interesting. So one of my follow-up questions, which I can't now ask properly, I was going to say, and then you kind of put a kibosh on this, because you actually alluded to the fact that he grew up in a, in a, in a, in a single, not quite a hamlet, but a house in the middle of the wilderness. I was going to say, did he zone straight in on the military and archery, or did he have a number of Saturday jobs? You know, was he like working the fish and chip shop? Yes. That doesn't work because he, uh, he just ran away um, and just ran away. That was probably, his job. Okay. probably went to like the nearest or like the near the first um, settlement, slightly bigger than like a hovel or a hamlet, um, and they were probably there was probably someone there who was like a almost like a a crier or a recruiter for the military. And then he, he joined up because he just wanted to get the fuck out of there. Do you know what? I applaud you as writing a backstory for a sharpshooter almost always involves the circus somehow. And you said <laughs> yeah, that was not something that came into my mind when I was coming up with Patty's backstory. Not sad enough. Rewrite. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. That's good. Well, I think we've all learned something there. That's not, I didn't actually know that. And now I do. And I think that's a bit of color to the character, which I think is brilliant. Right, Maud, you turned up quite late in this campaign, um, mostly because we didn't know each other. But would you like to tell me or Chris or Matt or the entire internet who clearly listened to this something interesting? So for those people who don't know, Maud of Nightmares was introduced into the campaign, not as a straight-up character, but she appeared as a bullet, which is a giant land shark for anyone who is not familiar with D&D parlance and what started as a terrible showdown with a giant land shark actually turned into it turned out that she had shapeshifted and got stuck in the form of a giant land shark so actually there was a good year where more didn't exist so would you for the sake of shits and giggles like to tell us anything about Maud's backstory yes I would so Maud is a sassy bears no fools rips off gnomes' faces and wears them for fun kind of tiefling. <laughs> Definitely hard dream. She is not a work of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a hard drinker and puts up with no shit. But Maud's past life is very difficult. So Maud came, was quite high up in the church of Segal. Ah, yes. St. Stephen. St. Manbun. The Church of Seagal with their prize book, The Book of Seagal. I see. Maud was banished from the Church of Seagal oh. for 
disrespecting its highest deity. And what what's the highest deity of um, the Sigal? Is it a religion or is it more? So of a... it's it's a following. So okay, it's it's a entire life Buddhism esque type following. Like the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, do no harm. You know, love everybody even if you hate them. You know, wear long flowing robes. Uh, okay, no drinking, no smoking, no swearing. Occasionally. They have silence, you know, full days for silence. Um, so this is a, just to clear something up, this is a cult, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Maud was banished one day from the cult of Seagal. Oh, it's now the cult of Seagal. Okay, okay. This is now well, canon. Following of Seagal, right, okay. she was banished. Do they see themselves as a cult or is that a label that other people have put upon That's them? That's a label that other people outside oh, okay. of the okay. following label them with. But Maud was... I mean, I mean, what cult sees themselves as a cult? Hmm? Damn you. Okay, five points extra XP for you. <laughs> uh, question. Did Maud grow up in the cult or was she uh, inducted into it? I nearly said abducted, but that could also be true. Uh, Maud was found as a young child wandering around uh-huh. in in the forest and the group of Seagal found her and she grew up in that group. Um, she didn't know any different. Um, and then, you know, the strange occurrences happened and Maud had to leave. And, and do you want to leave those as a bit of a mystery and unpack them uh, in further storyline? Or, I mean, from what I'm hearing, they seem to be quite an easygoing, happy-go-lucky, sandal-wearing group of yeah. peaceful types yeah. and you i don't want to say you're angry but you're working through a number of issues um, um, well it, it was it was a strange day it was more tripped and fell into a vat of wine and then unfortunately the highest deity of the church of Segal is a is a seagull called Seven. <laughs> I can't tell if this is canon now, but it might as well be. We've done weirder shit. Unfortunately, Stephen was very... <laughs> Unfortunately, okay. Stephen was Stephen very the seagull chirpy. Of the yeah. Stephen was very chirpy in the mornings and Maud was not a morning person. So completely off, off her face, she chose at this point to take out her frustrations of 20 years and batter Stephen um, for 20 years of waking up at five o'clock in the morning with seagull noises. Because this is called the the the, the followers of Seagal. I'm definitely picturing like all, when you're talking about like the members that found you in the woods, I'm picturing a party of people that basically just look like the Expendables. No, no, they're like white flowing robes. They're very peace loving people. Stephen, the seagull, is their, their highest deity. Was or is? Didn't you batter him? I mean, did he no, survive? Yes. You clipped... They just batter Oh, you just clipped his wings? He genuinely does have some, like, magical properties, and he has, he has actually healed himself. Well, let's add Stephen, the seagull, to the panel of people that you've crossed. who will probably turn up in a bonus episode to haunt you, along with uh, Jacob Sugarplums. Get his name on the Miro board, AJ. I've, yeah, and also for for listeners, um, I have no idea what your experiences of DMing are like, and I'm pretty sure everyone's experience is slightly different. Uh, I used to freestyle a lot of this and probably still do because I love improv. 
but it got messy. And what started as a group of notes on my iPhone, one time they got corrupted and I, I genuinely panicked. I turned up 10 minutes before the episode and I couldn't, I didn't have any more notes. So I actually started a Miro board, which maps everything out. It looks like um, the serial killer's layer in seven where there's just bits of string attached to everything. And there's a ginormous board of digital post-it notes with the entire cast, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things, and have to put a little skull and crossbones by the post-it notes of people that you've killed um, just so that I can keep track of it all. Because quite often you'll reference someone or something, and I've got a pretty good memory, but I have to keep it on a second monitor so that I can work out what the fuck is going on. Because some characters have followed you quite a long way around uh, and sometimes I look back and I realize there are people like, uh, you took an airship trip, uh, across the Dumrock Mountains and you managed to force the airship to take an emergency landing because you threw a murderer out of the, uh, back of the airship. And the pilot, who I think was called Barry Meatlips, by this all was, accounts. This was pre-podcast, right? This is pre-podcast. Yeah. Wow. It's referenced in the podcast when you're in trial in Utherden. But um, there was a pilot who was a family man. He had a wife and kids, and his name was Barry Meatlips. And due to you opening the airlock at the back of the airship and throwing uh, a man out to his death, uh, Barry was uh, indicted, charged, and at trial found guilty of gross negligence for letting that happen whilst he was in uh, charge of the airship. And he's currently in prison. And that's a fact you well know, and none of you have ever tried to rectify that. I think that's because Gathro Stankley opened the airlock oh, himself yeah. to try and get out. Gathro Stankley, for those who don't know, uh, long before the podcast happened, the adventuring party tried their hand at being CSI agents, crime scene investigators, and failed miserably, finally after three episodes, managing to track down the murderer, Gathro Stankley, who it's always gnomes who are violent in this, uh, who was a violently deranged gnome. Small people are more evil. He he wrote a cryptic note. I genuinely encoded a note and gave it to the players and let them work it out. And we all we all worked it out straight away. And you all worked it out, but you didn't think my clue was good enough or who, clever who enough. Who worked it out? Was it me? I think I worked it out. Did you work it out? Yeah. Well done. That was a nice little thing I did for you back when I cared. My question about Barry Meatlips, is there not a yes. is there not an airship pilot's union <laughs> that should have represented him? Because if he's if he's not if he if he's just let himself get framed for something that wasn't his fault, it's kind of his own fault. All right, I'm gonna okay that that raises some interesting points, and we're getting very near the midpoint where we're going to refresh our cocktails. But when you do something of this scale, and I'm not saying that we're in the realms of critical role because that's on an echelon that we'll probably never eclipse. Probably. You and we do borrow some of their universe. And yes, we set our podcast in Alexandria because I'm lazy and maybe one day we'll do a campaign too and I'll make my own universe. But for now, we borrow the wonderful Alexandria from Matt Mercer's group. But when you have something of that scale and you run it for several years and, you know, podcast wise, we're on circa 20 episodes. In reality, we're more and more like 40. There are so many narrative loopholes and possibilities that even with the best intentions of me trying to sew them all up and allow you to have free will and wander around and affect the landscape as you will and wish, I can't possibly make them all make sense. So with that in mind, and this may be one for you to think about over a drinks break or if you've got anyone now, what 
glaring loopholes have I left in the storyline? Because I can think of a few that I could, if you can't think of one, I can bring one to reference. Because Matt's good at this. Matt's very good. When I've written a tight storyline, he drops a bombshell and I'm muttering under my breath like, oh, fuck. Anything to do with animals. Why are all the gnomes Scottish? No, why are all the dwarfs Scottish? Um, so there have been some interesting ones I had. I once set the, the, the night where Tatty lost his fingers, famously. I set it in the middle of a thunderstorm, and a lot of the storyline revolved around the fact that there was a thunderstorm, and it was wet, and visibility was bollocks, and you were all soaked to the skin, and you were being chased by a hunter. And then for some reason, I set a task where you had to look at the stars yes. through a telescope. And Matt was like, oh, yeah, ain't there be a thunderstorm? You can see the stars. And I was like, yeah, fuck. What I will say, one that Matt picked up on straight away, which really did a number on me because I hadn't thought about it, was there's a long form storyline that we, was actually currently available in the podcast, whereby you were sent on a mission by the order of the Teslit cloak to deliver a letter and you traveled across air and land and possibly sea and water. And then you got there and the village, Pale Bank village that you were supposed to deliver the letter to had been attacked by gnomes due to a confluence of storyline and rolling. But the gnomes, uh, led by the uh, Tati's nemesis, Skull, had only arrived and massacred the village 24 hours earlier. And somebody, I think it was Matt, pointed out that the chances of you travelling for weeks, months and whatever, and it happening 24 hours, you were like minutes late in the grand scheme of the universe, just because the storyline came together, because it was exciting yeah, and I- things like... I like that. I don't. I, I, like I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember. I probably did have a problem with it at the time, but I think that sounds quite. <laughs> I didn't love the morality sermon that you gave us when you were like, "If you just got here a little bit sooner," I was like, "All right, fuck off." <laughs> <laughs> all, all right, priest Segal, you can fuck off. Um, there, there's bound to be loopholes. Um, I, I must admit, I walked in th- at the moment. Uh, by the time you listen to this, you'll certainly listeners will have heard one half of the courtroom scene. I don't know anything about the legal system, either US or UK, and I was definitely using language that was way wrong. And Matt, at one point, like, "Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can't be in contempt of my own defence." <laughs> like I was like, "But it sounds exciting from a storyline point of view." It's one of those phrases like double jeopardy. You just want to be able to say it at some point. Because I'd already tried, I tried to have a tense courtroom drama before the podcast aired, and you guys had just fucked it off and jailbroke and Hanash out of prison. Yeah, but it was a fun jailbreak. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I was a little bit itchy to have a courtroom drama. I've always wanted to see what you'd all do if I stuck you like in front of a judge. And that was actually a really good opportunity for you guys to have a bit. It was really is a lovely bit where Matt tries to defend you terribly, and Tatty has his moment. Um, there's a beautiful bit of like morality where Tatty feels hugely responsible for it all oh, and yeah. tries to sacrifice himself. Um, here's a question. How easy do you find it to role-play? And if you find it easy or hard, what has helped you flex those muscles? Because I find it too easy because I'm an idiot. Uh, Chanel always calls me a show pony. I just like to make people laugh. I don't really give a shit about what people think about me. So I'll just pretend to be a rock troll. Or but in a lovely a way, you're a show pony. I'm like a glittery Shetland. Well, I, I was thinking more, there's an advert and there's a tiny Shetland pony moonwalking back down the down the paddock. And that's, that's very you. 
but seriously, the, the three of you, anyone, how easy do you find it to role play? And is that a part of D and D that you find important, or yeah? Because I know it doesn't come naturally to everyone. Yeah, I think um, I I find it easy to to. I mean, it's difficult to say because Tatty's. I mean, for most of us, these are like the first characters we've ever mm. we've ever played as in D and D. I find it very easy to um, role play as Tatty. Uh, and I think it's because in some ways, at least in the session to session stuff, like wending around the big moments, um, Tatty's quite like, he's quite hyper focused, uh, which is definitely not what I'm like, to be fair. Um, but if you tell me what I'm supposed to be working towards and, you, you know, how long the session is going to be, uh, I'm going to like, I'm going to try and push us in that direction. I mean, quite like objective driven. And I think that kind of comes from Tati's military background. And for me, it's kind of like wanting to move the, wanting to keep the story moving, I guess. Um, I love the, like the shenanigans that we have interspersed throughout, but it's definitely like for Tati, it's like, all right, where am I? Where am I going? What's my like? What's my end point here? Mm. And that really comes across the military precision. That is interesting. The ability to keep the plot going when the rest of us are taking a shit down a well or something like that is a genuine are you name asset. checking anyone there, Matt. That sounds very much like you're name checking a certain character who has a fecal obsession. Um, that's interesting. How do you find it, Matt? Um, the funny, the the funny. It's kind of like the um, separation between gameplay and character. In that, I often ask myself, "What would Belsiot do?" And the answer is usually run away or hide under something or not be in combat. So I have to make a kind of... So there's there's a side of Belsia that I have to like tap into that's like his... Although his first response is to like run away, that's not going to be very entertaining for a, a combat-focused D&D game. So he's also got an element... I also have to like tap into an element of fucking shit up and a desire to... Like, I don't know what his, I, I, I used to think he'd be like chaotic neutral because chaos is his, is his, the thing that, 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 that gets him most, uh, that drives him is blowing shit up and seeing pretty fires. Um, but at the same time, being, being a coward, and it, it, it's hard to kind of sometimes square that with the, like, need to make the plot go somewhere or I like, make things I like happen. the thing that, Part of that is like it's almost driven by like his awkwardness. I like the idea that you know, like in social interactions where people say like, "Oh, I just want this conversation to be over." Like, yeah. I like that Belsiar's desire to like blow shit up is literally just like, "I want this. I want this like out of my way because it's stressing me out." So it is a fireball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I do. Like, if I was, if I was, if I was a wizard or if I was a sorcerer, that's exactly what I'd be like. Yeah. I think from a narrative point of view as a DM, that's a gift though, because what I'm always looking for is to A, move the storyline along. Anything, anything you do, I'll move the storyline along and I'll adjust it to meet your needs, your requirements to give you as much free reign as possible. But I'm also looking for entertainment. I'm going to make you have fun and you laugh and the listeners find it interesting. And I think narratively, if I were to give you a stick of dynamite, if you give a stick of dynamite to an engineer, it's exciting because it's dangerous 
but it's also like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. It's all right. He's going to stick it in a wall, back off. And, you know, if you give a stick of dynamite to an evil person, it's interesting. But you know what they're going to do. Whereas if you give a stick of dynamite to a coward, <laughs> narratively, that's fascinating. Because you're like, I haven't got a fucking clue what this guy's going to do with it. You might not even use it at the right time. He's probably going to save it for the least appropriate time. Yeah. And then use it. And that's how I feel about Belsia. He's like a coward with a stick of dynamite. That's very interesting. I like that. That uh, that's spot on. I think I might I might get that on a t shirt. Belsia, a coward with a stick of dynamite. <laughs> right before we quickly stop for a drinks break, Maud Chanel Chanel of nightmares. How do you find role playing? Um, I don't mind it easy, but I think that's just because you finish your day at work, and I find it really hard to because we work from home. Find it hard to switch off. I think if I worked in an office and then came back and that was my relaxation time and it was completely different, I think I'd be able to settle down a bit more. Um, but by the time we're at least halfway through, I've kind of forgotten how much anger and hatred and boiling resentment is simmering like millimeters underneath the surface. And you can I, make that I, part of your character. That's that's what I think. <laughs> right. And I, I do, I really do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I don't, it's not a, I've always wanted to play D&D &D and it's not something that nat comes naturally to me. Um, but I'm, I was really interested to see how it would be when we played in person. Um, and I really enjoyed that. That was really good as well. Mm. There's something magical about being able to play in person. Mm. I find it a great experience. Yeah. See, I find it the other way around. I mean, obviously I'm the weirdest of all of you because I have to be like some sort of chameleon with a million characters in my head at any given time that I can roll out. I struggle the other way around. If anyone, I doubt very much anyone I do or have worked with listens to this, but I've certainly been told off more than once at work because I just role play. Uh, and I will role play at the most inappropriate of times. And client meeting. I just find it fascinating. I've certainly been told off more than once um for reaching into a character and then you know thinking it'd be really interesting right now if i was this kind of person what would happen if i suddenly become really shy or what would happen if i suddenly become very combative or and and it's almost sometimes i like this makes me sound like an absolute fucking sociopath or or have some degree <laughs> of psychopathy but sometimes i road sometimes i road test sometimes i road test characters in meetings with people because i'm like I just want a bit of feedback. What would happen with this unique blend of overconfidence mixed with a chip on the shoulder? Yeah. <laughs> you can often hear him maniacally laughing in, you know, from the other room in meeting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I very, I very much. Do. I just find it interesting because it's, it's just like dialing up different aspects of like attributes of personality and this is going to make me sound like a psycho as well but when you're in meetings and when you're especially i mean obviously me and aj used to work in well we both used to work at the same agency but like if i if i used to you know if i was in a client meeting i would have to consciously dial up that more not just the more talkative and sociable aspect of myself but like the more show pony aspect of myself when you're presenting your own work and it's very strange. And when you come out of it, you're like, Oh my God, I feel like I just blacked out for an hour. But yeah. So I'm a psychopath, but what about you guys? See, I, I, I find it delightful, but I know I'm strange in that. Yeah. And I know for some people, 
So lots of different people and our listeners will definitely be able to relate to this. You come to D&D for different reasons. And, it, you know, some people, it's the law and the mythology and the canon that they love. And for some people, it's the rules and the safety that a D20, you know, a natural 20 is always brilliant and a natural one is always a failure. And there's a safety within the structure of that. And then for some people, it's just the characterization and, and losing yourself in an infinite world. And I know, Chris, you're very much like me and you love open world games like Skyrim and, and Red Dead. I love dicking about in those games and just being <laughs> like, I wonder what's behind that shed. Or if I collect all the weeds in this particular, you know, there, is there an award? This is for- to go back to what you were saying about the, the one shot that kicked off the campaign. This was, this was why we spent so long fucking about in the sewers. It's because I think I was, I was just coming off playing Red Dead Redemption where you literally have to like go up to every item and like hold <laughs> something to like pick them up. And I was like, Oh, okay. So everything that I want to find, I have to roll a separate investigation check for. I'm going to go and investigate and then I'm going to go investigate again. And then I'm going to go and investigate again because I want to pick every every fucking thing up that's in this fucking sewer. That's very. I think there was a yeah, there was a definite like because I never I that that's going back to the question about character or role playing. I never like investigate as Belsia because Belsia wouldn't investigate. Belsia just stands there until something happens, and then he throws an ice knife. Like the most passive character ever. I'm just going to stand here and if something happens, it happens. I know we're going full circle here and we're going back a couple of questions and we're going back to the character, you know, a bit of backstory. Belsiar strikes me, and I think mostly because I wrote some of his backstory and you created the rest freestyle. Isn't he quite a privileged guy? Didn't he come from a sort of quite yeah, aloof, aristocratic, um, no, uh, academic background? Yeah. In, um, so he is using in, other people doing stuff for him. Yeah, in OG... OG <laughs> Dragonborn. It's like Transformers Generation Generation One, and Beast then they Wars. Re- yeah, Beast Wars was like Generation Two or whatever. But the the OG Belsiar was from like um, a aristocratic, aristocratic academic kind of family. Oh. I think Beast Crocomus Prime. <laughs> well, no, that that that's Beast Wars. The new Beast Wars Belsiar, oh. who was a Crocoborn, I think, comes from kind of southern plantation money. Or okay. either old, old rich or nouveau rich. I don't know, but yeah, his family probably did questionable things. Yeah, they've got a. I, I think an element of his character is dealing with his privilege and getting away from that. Um, mm. And because I, I, I kind of one of my plans for the current when for the the courtroom episode was like, is there a way Belsia can just call his dad up and get a, a lawyer <laughs> and what would that mean because he'd be i think he'd be that would he it would be a moral quandary for Belsia because it's like well i don't want to just call my dad up and get me out of this but also i don't want to go to prison so i thought that'd be quite an interesting like but in the end yeah in the end shit went to went went to fuck and uh yeah, it's amazing. Actually, it's lovely to do these things because you can look back on episodes. And I, I play the episodes through and I remember them and I have to edit them. So I go through them in great detail. And I know you guys don't have to do that. And to hear other junctions and other thoughts that you had that never played out is fascinating to me because I only ever get to see it the way it was played out. That is really, really interesting. Right. On that note, shall we quickly refresh our drinks? For the listeners, um, well, firstly, welcome back. 
And secondly, Chanel has made two of the greatest pint glasses of French martini the world has ever seen. Right. As we kick back off, anyone got any burning questions? Chanel's usually sitting on three or four of them. Um, Did your character, does your character have any unexplained trauma with animals? (laughs) I don't don't want to talk about it. But it involves otters. (laughs) Yeah. I think I, I think Balsia was probably attacked by raccoons or something or squirrels. I can see that happening. Oh, you were just playing, yeah, and juggling acorns. And then they turned, and then a pack of yeah, squirrels yeah. just came along and skull fucked you or something. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Tatty's home life before he joined the military, they were too poor to have pets. So his first, his first like um, example of animal friendship was Barbara. Um. Yeah. No. Not, no. Not the pig on the porch in his little yokel backwater creek house. No, I wasn't brought up in the same in the same bayou as Belsia. Oh, that's true. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, before we come back to that point, I don't know why I was thinking about it, but in one of the episodes, we have a really fucking disturbing conversation about what happens when a dragonborn ejaculates. Um. And whether it's like a gout of kerosene that ignites and kind of comes out as like a miniature flamethrower. I don't know how we got from animals. Well, it kind of depends on what kind of dragonborn, what kind of, what color dragon they are. Isn't there like different color dragons and they have like a different breath, a different breath weapon? I don't see dragons in those terms. But but what about... Because you don't, because you're a fucking crocodile. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Belsiar is probably like... A tiny, like, confetti cannon going off. <laughs> wow. Like with a... Just an air horn that goes off. There's no fanfare. It's hard to say because he's clearly a virgin, a self-professed one of that, but I imagine if he ever did go, it would be a little bit like when you change the Hoover bag, but you forget to put the plug in, and then you walk to the bin and just leave a trail of dust behind you. It's <laughs> um, kind of how I imagine it a little bit. To go off that, to go off that topic a little bit, um, now that we've kind of done a little bit of digging into like Belsiar's very, very specific like heritage, shall we say? There is a part, there is a part of me that wants to probably with, probably with you, Matt, just sit and go through like D&D Beyond's like the way that you can like tweak some of the like racial attributes. That's what I'd like to do. Yeah. Yeah, there's some like extra, there's some like extra points you can edit, and I'd, I'd kind of like see what we can do with that. Do a homebrew, yeah, with the crocoborn, yeah. That's an interesting one, yeah. If anyone's actually listening to this and would like us to do a homebrew crocoborn um, profile, then I'm sure that's something because you can mess with, you can mess with like lineages and traits and stuff. So Mm. yeah, it's it's probably something we can mess about with. Could you make him a crocopoo? Crocopoo. A crocopoo. Yeah, like you have a. a, a oh wow! A... Speaking of animal-based trauma, <laughs> a crocodile and a dog once. Yeah. 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 Maud is is now afraid of seagulls, and she hears them screaming in the middle of the night. It's the one thing she can't wild shape into. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask a serious question at this point? I don't want to bring the mood down, but I find it really, really interesting. And I think we've had this conversation before. I spoke to a friend once who doesn't play D&D and 
I was trying to sell it to him, and he said, "Fundamentally, I'm not interested." No, and I, I said, know. What, should be. I know what fucking question. It's like a sandbox. Horrible. And I was like, "It's a sandbox, right? It's a make-believe universe with no consequences where you can do anything." Who wouldn't want that? And he said, "I wouldn't want." That. And I went, "But you can do anything." And he said, "But would you do anything?" And I said, "Oh shit, no." And I was, and I'd gone like, you know, you can kill people in the most heroic or visceral of ways, and there's no consequences. You can be a thief. And there's no consequences. And he said, but would you rape someone? And I thought for a little moment, and I, well, a long moment, whatever. And I said, no, no, of course I wouldn't. And that's where I find it really, there's an interesting argument. To what degree in D&D are there boundaries with which you will not cross? I think, and not to sound like I'm parroting the words of Matt Mercer or like Brennan Lee Mulligan back to us, but like, I think there's a... There's a level of, it's like comfortability versus safety in what you're willing to address. Um, and for us, for, for this group, at least, it's always been an unspoken conversation. We never had that conversation, but we've, you know, we've always understood pretty much what each other's boundaries are. Um, and there are some things that we won't, we won't go into. And I think I think that example is a very fucking easy one. You know, none of us are going to go and rape someone because um, that's just fucking horrific. Um, but can I give you another example? And this is my personal example. I always, and again, this is interesting and possibly it's my naivety and my privilege and, and whatever. Whenever I talk about Hanash, I always describe him as our green skin friend because I can't think of a better way of describing an orc than green skin. Whereas if I took that example and put it in the real world, it would be offensive, not only to myself, but to any degree of culture and society. But if not, it seems too easy to talk about him in those terms. I, I would disagree. I would disagree under the guise that it, it's a fantasy world. So the offence level in a fantasy world is slightly different. If it's something about somebody... If you're making a reference to somebody who would be real in a real life scenario, I think you do have to choose your words carefully, you know, and you have to look at perhaps how it could be perceived outside of our nice, cosy, warm little world. But I think if you're making reference to a character, there there are no people, you know, who are green skinned. There are no people who are blue skinned. And that is not a parody for somebody else. It's the way that somebody's made up. So, for instance, you know, I, I'm of mixed heritage and I would sit there and say that I am brown skinned and I would be perfectly happy with somebody referencing me as, you know, there was a blonde head Chanel and then there was me. So a white blonde head Chanel and then there was me. They would say, oh, you know, Chanel you know, brown Chanel or Chanel with brown hair and brown skin. You know, it is a, it's a description of somebody rather than, you know, an offensive term. And I think motive goes into that as well. It's not, you have to kind of look at whether you're being overly sensitive to something that isn't logical. There is nobody alive on this planet with green skin. Mm, That's interesting. What's your take, Matt? It's yeah, it's like um it's I think it's it's healthy in a way to explore to have an environment like this where you can explore race and gender and sexuality and all the difficult things in a 
in an environment where literally the only limit is your imagination. Because um, I know that I, I imagine there's probably a lot of like LGBTQ D and Ders who enjoy the chance to be someone of a different gender or someone of a gender that they want to express, but they can't. Um, and in terms of like, I find and, and, and race is interesting because I'm I'm technically also mixed race. I'm a quarter Indian. Um, and it doesn't come up. It, it, it has come up in my life sometimes, not often, but sometimes. And it's, it's interesting. I really like playing Dragonborn because a, a, a Dragonborn is a unusual sight in a lot of, in a lot of Alexandria. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of nice to play that in a, in a, in a controlled environment to be an outsider, to be someone a bit different. And explore that in in a game rather than um, whereas in real life when when you when you deal with those topics things get uncomfortable very quickly. But being a being a, a magical crocodile, it's a bit more. It feels a bit safer and a bit more comfortable to to, to talk about that stuff and explore that stuff. That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah I don't. I, 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 it's it rarely comes up. But I, I just think of like times when. Belsia was in the sauna with his fellow Dragonborn. I was literally <laughs> about to reference that moment because I remember it well, and it made me think at the time. You'll have to explain like, that to so, people. Who... Um, he, so I can't remember what that was. That at the um, that was that in Port de Mali. Was it the Order of the Order Tesla Tesla Cloak, Cloak, where There's a sauna in the basement, and and, mm-hmm. and Belsia just went in and and bumped into some of his fellow Dragonborn, um, who I think were a bit standoffish to him, and it felt. It felt a bit like it was interesting because that kind of my specific ethnicity is Anglo-Indian, which is a a ethnicity so rare it basically stopped existing in 1947 because it was the mixed race of um, basically British people who went out to India and took Indian husbands and wives. So there was a there was a whole community of mixed race Indian Indian British people in India that basically stopped existing. And no longer exists anymore, apart from like it's. I know some of my. I've got in contact with some of my relatives who live in kind of across England now, but there's no community for that. Um, so it's like I feel a little bit of kinship with Belsia that he's a, a, a dragonborn of his own clan who's kind of been cast out from everything else and and doesn't really fit in anywhere. Um, and so like all that that kind of shit, which I'd, I'd find really difficult to talk about. I'd never talk about that with anyone about myself, but playing a fantasy crocodile, you can <laughs> you can play through these things and explore it, and it's it's, it's yeah, mm. that is really interesting, isn't it? Wow, and I think that's part of the. Do you know what? And again, I, part of the privilege of doing all of this is you can play this game on so many different levels, and for me, it's a wonderful escape. Not that my mind doesn't live in the universe of Adventurers Anonymous, even when I'm supposed to be working, I'm still thinking about stuff. But you can escape into it. And for us, we started whilst COVID was happening, burgeoning. And it was an area we could escape into. But I forget sometimes that I play it on one level and um, other people play it on much deeper levels than I may do. Or I may see something as jovial, but other people find it deeply kind of distressing or reflective. And I never actually stopped to think about that. Uh, and that's actually really interesting because I very rarely dwell on my personality type. I, I, I'm very lucky. I come from a background of improvisation 
I will happily stand on stage. I will try and entertain people with no fucking idea, no script, no pre-idea. But to do that, you have to be very, uh, stuff has to be disposable. If you bin, if you balls it up, if you go down in flames, it doesn't matter. It was just a like a doodle. It wasn't an oil painting. You didn't get to the end of the oil painting and slip and fuck something up. It was just a doodle, a sketch. But actually, I forget sometimes that these things have much deeper resonance for people. <laughs> and I, I sometimes play for fun, and I'm sure we all do. But other times, there's actually a deeper meaning. Um, and that's actually something very interesting to consider. Um, how about you, Chris? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, um, playing Tatty, kind of, kind of similar to to Matt and Belsiar, um, and that wasn't really something that I'd I'd clocked about the way that you think about Belsiar and the way yeah. that you think about like Dragonborn. It, I mean, yeah, because I've I've known you like eight years now, Jesus, and I don't think we've literally talked about this once, but I can talk about it in this context. Yeah, it Which was it was something that was kind of I kind of knew you had non shall we say non Anglo heritage, but it but we don't need to talk about that. Yeah. Which I've always I've always like privately liked that that I don't I mean I don't know some <laughs> for example it's the first thing in the first asked. conversation that we ever had i said to matt where where are you from and he said oh i'm from, I'm from, I'm from norwich and i said no but where, where are you from, from originally <laughs> where, where, are you from? From? where are you from that's literally no. what that's literally like the second thing milka asked me like she was like where are you from <laughs> she's like, so norwich. finished yeah but where are your family from <laughs> norfolk mm. Yeah. So I never really think about D and D in those terms. Sorry, Chris. Karen. Um, I have an answer locked and loaded. I just want to. What was the? <laughs> what was the question again? Sorry, I got really interested by Matt's answer. Uh, kind of it's about boundaries, really. You know, what has it? I suppose there's healthy boundaries and there are unhealthy boundaries. And to what degree has playing helped you open up, or to what degree has it helped you realize there's clear and present boundaries you won't. Yeah, I think um, for me, Tati is a interesting way for me to look at mental health. Um, and um, you know, I've got I've got some shit going on in my head that that is just there all the time. Um, but Tati and his like obvious PTSD and some of the role play elements that we've had around that has been a, an interesting way to engage with that. Um, there's, you know, there were some really good moments before, I think probably just before we got to Pale Bank Village and at Pale Bank Village where Tati is very obviously like freaking the fuck out. Um, and it was a, a good way for me to engage with my mental health without cutting too close to the bone. Mm. Do you know, as many times like this, I do almost feel a little bit sad that I don't have a character. I have a infinitesimal amount of characters that I can reach to, but I don't have anyone that I'm, I do maybe for an arc, say Theoli, and I really enjoyed playing him. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I feel responsible for Aristobulus because Lewis isn't about, but I don't have somebody. It's a different level of engagement for you. It's, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is interesting. And I have to be careful sometimes. Um, <laughs> Lewis obviously isn't around. He's got responsibilities with the band. He's got to record in the studio. 
make new content, tour, do all these great things, you know, come up with our next theme tune. So when he comes back, he finds out what I've done with his character. And then I don't want to feel like I've made choices for him. So in the past, I've been guilty of trying to force him into relationships because I think it'll be interesting narratively. And I'm pretty sure possibly my take on his sexuality is that he would do that. But that might not be Lewis's take. And sometimes I wonder, like, is it offensive that I've just caused your make-believe character to be bisexual or, you know, is... I think Aristobulus is definitely, like, some kind of pansexual entertainer. Uh, (laughs) Right. That was a very serious section and actually probably one of the most interesting things I think has happened in two years of recording this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Rescue us from that, Chanel, with another question. Something about farts or or cum. If if your character was an animal in the zoo, so any section of the zoo from like the creepy crawlies, a couple of weird scaly animals to like, you know, obviously the the big big, uh, safari types, what would your character be? That's a question. Oh, that's difficult for me. Before we kick off on this, and please do in a minute. Chanel, do you have a fixation about animals? Because your character is a druid who can talk to animals. And every single question you've asked so far, by and large, has been about animals. No, no, no. Like, trash TV. Do you find them easier than people? trash TV. I find animals much more rewarding than people. I work in IT, and I can look and see the lay of the land and the politics working. The politics working remotely is very difficult. but. If you point at an animal and it doesn't like you, you know it doesn't like you. And if you It's so immediate. It's yeah. yeah. Well if you meet an animal and you offer it food, it likes you. Very obvious. Yeah. You know, you don't need to try very hard. It's it is lives black or white. You know, you feed something, you give it a hug, and you keep it warm and it's happy. That's it. People. Is that how you got me? I just like traps down, traps of food down. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's also for, for just clarity, going into making Maud, I realised that if I had the ability to either change or talk to animals and it was limitless, that the I would be able to find a loophole in any situation because there would always be something around and the range was so big that I would be able to mentally talk to it, telepathically talk to it, change into it, or get it to do my bidding quite quickly. <laughs> and I thought, why not? And if not, I could do a, what's that scream called? Hellish Rebuke. A Hellish Rebuke, and just kill everything within a couple of miles. And that, I was like, well, what else do I need? I've got an in. Not that I'm trying to force the conversation down certain avenues, but for me, and we will get back to the what's your animal in the zoo question, For me, that raises a really interesting question. Now, I had to, this podcast is completely self-promoted. We don't pay anyone to promote it. We're in our early infancy. We've got a nice following of people. We've nearly hit a thousand followers, I believe, Chris, which in the grand scheme of things is neither here nor there, but feels very impressive to me. And one of the things you have to do is constantly submit this podcast to um, directories of other podcasts and people who categorize them and review them. And you have to tick a lot of boxes. And one of the boxes you have to tick about D&D Real Play podcasts is is it a stickler for the rules or is it the rule of cool, which is the other end of who gives a shit about the rules? You know? And I think we're very much down the rule of cool end. 
because I've definitely sweated blood over what Chanel's just said, where I'm like, technically, by the rules, she shouldn't be able to speak to every fucking stick insect and... Raise a stick <laughs> insect army against our enemies, no. <laughs> but I think it makes for a better narrative. Mm. Whereas Chanel could be like, oh, I talk to the dust mites that are living in the mattress in my prison cell. Um, where do you guys come down on that? Between, do you like the rules? Do you feel safe in them? Or is it just a purely flexible mesh and fun is the... Okay. Um, I think the the rules and the mechanics specifically can be a good, uh, a good framework. Um, and I think more than anything, it's it's kind of it's kind of down to you how we use them like the way that i remember before we did the the one shot for like our first year anniversary last year when we were trying to get complete newbies to play along with us and they were sweating about like the numbers and stuff that were all over the D beyond screen the way that i explained it to them was don't worry about the numbers don't worry about the rules and the mechanics just tell aj what you want to do He'll run it through the filter of that system to get where we want to, to get where you want to go, essentially, and tell you what you need to what you need to do. Um, so I think the the rules are the rules as we use them are good for the tone of our podcast. I think we, you know, you said we come down closer to the to the rule of cool. I think we probably do come down a bit closer to the rule of cool than to like rules as written, however you want to describe it. Um, I think we do, you know, especially when it's like in combat and stuff, we do kind of fall back on some of the like base mechanics. Um, at least that's the way that I tend to look at things. Um, but yeah, I think the way that, I think the way that we do it now works because I think it, it just works for the tone of the podcast. That's interesting. How about you, Matt? Cause I know Matt as a programmer. You would, and I'd say that from somebody who has a degree in computer science. Sorry, computer systems engineering. I don't want to get sued by anyone. <laughs> um, there's a fundamental safety in the knowledge. There's documentation and things work in a certain way. And I can solve a problem by using A, B, and C. Yeah. How do you feel about it? Well, it feels really, it, there's a, there's a nice, there's a way of playing D and D that has a nice challenge by playing by the rules. And I was just thinking, like, I've got really into Sudoku lately. And it's like... <laughs> Pioneer. Yeah. Have you heard about it? It's like a crossword, but with numbers. Um, is it like Wordle? Yeah, it's like Wordle, but with... It's uh, so addictive. <laughs> it's brilliant. Well, Wordle's a good example, because it's like, if I said to you, type five letters into a box, you'd be like, this is boring. If I say, there's rules, then it becomes interesting. And it... it the algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> The the way that you, for example, in like in D and D, looking at your spell list and thinking like I can burn a sorcery point, fire ice knife, and only take out two of my companions rather than all of them. <laughs> I I find that really interesting in a way that some people might find really boring. But I'm like I'm going to use I can use the rules here to solve a problem. The fact the problem is completely made up, and we I could just say like. I point my finger and kill everyone who opposes me. And and as DM, you 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 could say that doesn't happen, and I could say yeah, it does happen. Like, but we've never had a major falling out. Now, interestingly, and I'll come back to Chanel in a minute, actually, because I'm sure she's got something to say on this. I 
try to let you do what you want to do. And often at my own expense, because I'll write storyline that goes straight in the bin or I'll pin it to the wall, my Miro board, and I'll be like, I'll just come back to that. And I did that with the courtroom drama and things like that, because you often go the route. And I try my very best to let you to yes and in improv parlance. Um, but do you, and you know, I try not to argue, and Chris is very good at saying, hang on a minute, I think sneak attack damage or something like that. It's because it's like, all I've got. Give me sneak attack damage. <laughs> but that's interesting you say that, because how do you feel? And again, I, I have an absolute infinite amount of shit i can do like i could drop a ceiling on you from a poorly constructed rafter i could open the ground in front of you i could have a horde of fucking zombie badgers i can do whatever right but for you you are constrained to the things you're always trying to get more xp and that to be honest a quick side note i fucking hate giving out xp (laughs) because i feel like parent who has to choose his children and which he cares about more I hate it. It is the worst part of any D&D session is having to give out XP at the end and tell people that they were slightly more interesting or more involved (laughs) than someone else because I know the other person might have had a really tough day at work and not be in the mood. And I have to be like, you only get 250 points, whereas they get 450 points, knowing full well that's not true. (laughs) But anyway, coming back, um, how does it feel like, because I've certainly played a lot of D&D across my life. I was actually a late comer to D&D, but there'll be characters where I'm like, fuck, I've only really got a fireball. So I'm thinking, I'm going to try and make like a Rube Goldberg machine or something, and I'm going to try and take the environment and use it to beat the shit out of this person because I'm really bored with fireballs, whereas Chanel is the other way around and actually doesn't ever bother fucking using her magic. And I think, spoilers, she might have, in an episode that hasn't been aired yet, actually use a fucking thorn whip, which she's been carrying around for a year and never used. The cantrip. It's a cantrip, I think. She, um, it's, um, it's a wild, a wild fucking ass spell. It looks great. I think I got a look at your character sheet once when I was supposed to play you one one week while you were away. Uh, so, uh, yeah. It is interesting. And actually talking about that, just again, we're just jumping from topic to topic, which is very much my personality. And I apologize. And to end this fucking thing in about 10 minutes, we're going to actually go around and say what fucking animal we are in the zoo, because we will get back to that question because it was a good question. But. One thing I stole, I think I want to say, and, and Chris, you're a lot more clued up on this, as much as I have watched lots of Critical Role, I know you've pretty much mainlined it. I feel like Liam O'Brien, everyone's favourite elf and, you know, um, smelly wizard, um, he's very good at describing the construction of the magic. Not just a fireball, but he's like... I take some grease and I rub it in the palm of my hand and I crumble and you're like, there's a methodology to magic. It's not like we live in a digital age. We're like, I click a button, something happens. Whereas there's this beautiful thing in magic, which it kind of goes back to children's party entertainment, which is sort of like the build up to the payoff is as important as the payoff. And I think in the story, I'm always, whenever I'm play playing Aristobulus or whatever, I'm a little bit like, how does he get the giant blue spectral phallus to appear? He doesn't like, he's not like, or he doesn't, uh, maybe it's like a dog is like, or something like that. And it just comes running like the horse in Red Dead. Um, is that, I know you're not a magic user, Chris, but Belsia, do you ever like, do you ever, or Maud, I suppose, do you ever think about the mechanics of how the magic happens? I, I prefer after, and I think it, it all comes into how you approach or what you use D&D for. So 
I'm not very creative. In my day job, I'm, you know, creativity isn't really required. Um, in my, in my day to day life, I think I struggle, I struggle with creativity. It's not something that I use and I wouldn't really know where to start. So D and D is my only creative outlet. Um, you know, to the point where we go, we go to Ikea and I can't physically imagine <laughs> something. You know, I'm like panic attacking around Ikea, like I can't do this. Um, so D&D is such a stretch for me that it's almost an emotional outlet rather than a creative one. Like I love the story. I love the story because my tiny logical little brain can't fathom how it came out of a human being, you know, this story and how there's like endless possibilities. But you know, I don't necessarily want to be constrained to when I've had a really shit day and I've had nine back to back meetings and I've had a retro that most of, mostly defines my actions. I don't want to come into a D&D arena and be like, OK, so I need to think about using this creative process that I don't have. And how would I take this spell and how would I apply it to this situation? Oh, no, you can't apply it because some of these rules apply and da 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 when I can just grab them by the face, smash their face onto a rock and then wear it as a mask. That, for me, I think, again, coming back to the coward with the stick of dynamite for Belsiar, I think there's this beauty in narratively in this deadly person with unlimited potential magically who's like, fuck it, I can't be bothered, and just picks. I mean, it's like Aristobulus as well with the tin of sweet corn. Yeah. There's this person who can literally call forth spectral supernatural, preternatural things. And it's like, yeah, fuck it. Uh, just beat the head against a rock. Like, that's quite cool from a narrative I point know. of view. I, I've said this before, but I think Aristobulus in my head canon is this like Tom Bombadil from Lord of the Rings. I, he's a D, he was in an old D&D campaign. He got to level 20 and then he went back to level one because he got bored of being level 20. And his, he's, he's a thousand years old. He's done everything, and all he wants to do now is run around in a kimono and seduce elves and throw cancer sweet corn at people. And any time he wanted to, he could just blow up the entire world. But he's just like he 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 doesn't care. He just does what he wants because he's he's bored of being like an all powerful wizard. I mean, I don't think it gets better than that. I do like the way you interpret this universe. I really do. Um, right, we should probably wrap this up. As cocktails are running out, everyone's tired. Let's bring it back to Chanel's question. <laughs> Go on then. Now, Chanel, when you said in the zoo, what animal would you be, big or small, creepy crawly or apex predator, etc.? Did you mean the character or did you mean us, the players? Uh, I think we should stick to the character. So I think uh, a creature within that zoo doesn't have to be confined in the zoo. Before we get into this, and we will, and I know I keep on derailing us, just a real thought that pops into my head. Do you know we have zoos with really fucking exciting animals in, like beluga whales and zebras and all these things? Do you think people have British zoos? Do you think if you go to Africa, they literally just have like a budger egar and a hamster? A badger. Right, good. Okay, good, 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 good. Just wondered, because we obviously want to look at things we can't see. I wonder if other people... <laughs> <laughs> In the same way, somewhere on the planet, people think fish and chips is exotic. Right. Uh, so, yeah, animal. Uh, I saw, um, 
I think it was last week, week before last, look at the day, last week. Last week, there was an article um, where you could pay for a hissing cockroach to be fed to a meerkat on Valentine's Day. You know, for people who weren't romantically inclined, you could name the hissing cockroach and you could have it fed to a meerkat. Were you there present or? No, but I read it and I thought, what a really, really bloody good idea. And it got me, it got me down a, well, it was name a hissing, name a hissing cockroach after your ex and watch on Zoom as it was fed to a meerkat. And I was like, well, you know, some people like that, but, and it got me down a massive rabbit hole of meerkats versus honey badgers. Honey badgers winning. Honey badgers are the most vicious, intelligent animals on the planet, brain size to body size. I don't know how the fuck we got off topic again, but for our Australian listeners, I would like to see a cassowary versus a honey badger because that's basically a dinosaur. Matt's quickly Googling what a cassowary is. They have those in those Australian. Yeah, it's got yeah. a... Like a velociraptor with feathers. It's, it's like a very, very angry, ragey emu, but... With razor-sharp beak. I think those are the, the villains in one of the Far Cry games. Quite possibly. There's a video somewhere on YouTube where one of them puts his beak through a tin, metal tin sheet. Right. If you go to Cannes and you go to um, the rainforest in Cannes, you're not allowed to get out of your car because they chase you. But they only chase certain colour cars. They don't tell you that. <laughs> wow. I like the idea that they're just attracted to, like, hot pink or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Chanel slash Maud of Nightmares. What I'm hearing from you honey is probably badger. a honey badger. Honey badger honey or casserole? Okay. That tracks. Mm. Really clever with puzzles. Likes the wee everywhere. I'm struggling to separate between what my favourite animals that I've seen at zoos are and what Tatty's animal would be. <laughs> <laughs> my favourite animals that I've seen at a zoo, most of them were at Dublin Zoo. So one of them was when I first discovered what red-faced pandas are. Oh. Uh, they're so fucking cute. They're so fucking cute. So sweet. Um, saw some penguins there as well. Um, and then I also saw the gorillas there as well. And there was one that was just like, when the other ones were just like sat in the shade, well, like laid down in the shade, like trying to nap and stuff. There was one that was just like backed up against the glass where people would be like looking at them but like sat side on and just looking really grumpy. I was like, feel a lot of kinship with this gorilla. Um, and then at uh, Harewood House, I think it was a couple of years ago, I got to, I got to go and do a um, penguin feeding experience, Aww. which was hilarious and beautiful and super fucking cute. Um, so there's some of my favourite. It was a foraging experience I went on with you. That that doesn't even make the top the top ten. <laughs> Not really. Uh, not in terms of animal experiences. There were no animals there. Um, surely, you in, surely you ingested enough box piss in that car park for it to count as an animal experience. No, that was AJ. Just as a very, very, very quick aside, Chanel paid for Chris and myself to go on a foraging experience. I thought, rather naively, it would be somebody overturning logs in a forest, finding mushrooms and discerning, you know, which ones were safe. Turns out it was a lady with a funny stick and, you know, a load of bells on the end dressed as a wizard who walked us round a car park in a field pointing at little plants and we ate them, most of which had been pissed on by dogs and or run over by a car. 
I thought we'd be walking for longer. I don't think we got five minutes away from the car park. I don't think we got five minutes away from... Anyway, there we go. So, uh, yeah, don't let that put you off if you fancy doing a bit of foraging. Also, the fact that she kept saying, be very, very careful when you pick one of these, because if the leaf looks slightly different, it may cause terminal liver damage. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm never picking shit up (laughs) off a car park floor and eating it ever again. Mm. Sorry, yeah, so Silverback depressed, Silverback Gorilla is what I He wasn't depressed. He was just just looked a bit grumpy. Um, Oh, okay. I felt a lot of kinship with him. Um, okay. And yeah, the probably that and the red face uh, pandas. I love red pandas. You know, the they're so fucking the cute. Yeah, they're so fucking cute. I don't know what Tatty would be. He'd probably be some kind of like bird of prey. I think Tatty would be a, a sad, abandoned red panda. Yeah, sad panda. Yeah, sad they've got panda. like. Are they? Do they have any like predatory instinct at no, all? Did you see the one where they moved the rock and he's like, ah! he's, on that he's, no. he's scared of the rock because they moved it a couple of centimeters. <laughs> <laughs> it's either that or wow. it'd be. It's not necessarily a zoo animal, but a slow loris. You see those. You see those like <laughs> weird videos of them like scurrying around like the taps of people's sinks. Um, like that's how I imagine. It's a bit slow Yeah. No idea what one of those is. Oh, They're fucking cute. Okay. Well, that's one to Google later for me and the listeners, I'm sure. Matt. Um, Pressure's I was going to say panda, but I think that's been taken. I was, I'd, I'll say that the animal that you go up to the enclosure and you're not sure if it's there or if it's been removed or if it's just asleep, but you can't see it. But you can oh, feel it yeah. staring at you through the glass. Yeah. I like the leopard enclosure, I want to say. They're always like... Hidden in a tree. Yeah. Nine miles away or something like that. That, that smells, yeah. Okay. Hidden, hidden dangerous. Sometimes sometimes not there at all. I just remembered a story. Um, I'd like to tell it before we close, if that's okay. So I I went on a adult, well, it's a holiday for the over 50s when I was 25. <laughs> so Hang on. Thing. That feels like its own aside. Wow. Well, I went with my family. And did you pull? We were in the grounds of this saga holiday experience. (laughs) (laughs) There was was a lemur enclosure and it went through. So it was all enclosed um, and, you know, the lemurs couldn't get out and you were allowed to go through and walk through and it was a really beautiful wood. And I walked through, spent spent the best part of a week, you know, walking through this wood um, a couple of days. and. I didn't know that you couldn't feed the lemurs. There were no signs that you couldn't feed the lemurs. And so, you know, they gave you a pat lunch. I'd eat my pat lunch in the lima forest and they would eat my ham sandwiches and they'd have my steak crisps and, you know, they would like, it was like um, East Ventura, but they were like sitting all over you and your hair and, you know, eating your food in your bag and everything. And it was only on the last day that as I left the lima enclosure, I saw the big sign saying, do not feed our lemurs. They have a special <laughs> diet. And I spent seven days feeding this these lemurs. Any lemur I could see or touch throwing ham at it. And, <laughs> and then it was on the news that two of the lemurs had broken loose. <laughs> made their Shut way, the fuck up. Made their way up to the house and had to be <laughs> tranquilized in... <laughs> Brilliant! <laughs> in the <laughs> while they tried to get in the t- 
because they were looking for ham sandwiches. Wow. <laughs> they came during dinner service, oh. broke out the lemur enclosure, broke they into, can smell the meat, broke into the dinner service, and they had to be tranquilized. <laughs> Just imagine a waiter with a blow dart just going. I just feel like if 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 Chris Rag was here, he would immediately quote uh, the impression of Liam Neeson from The Grey, but switch the words around a little bit to be like, "If we're serving meat, we're already dead." <laughs> it was just brilliant, and it was as we left, I saw it come up on the like come up on my newscast, and I was like, "Oh no!" It's like I've managed to turn the lemurs rabid. I just like the idea you looked at the news clipping and you were like, oh no, not again. <laughs> how did like, how, like this is a habit. how could these po- these holiday goers possibly have a chance? They were all over 50. Yeah, they were over 60. It was like the walking <laughs> bed. Like, yeah, what kind of parent takes their child on a saga it was a holiday? Water break, which is like the over 50. Right. Um, and they, Did you get the stair lift up to your bedroom every night? All the bedrooms <laughs> on the ground floor. There were no stairs. <laughs> well, on that note, what a note to end That's on. That's like top five best stories ever, I think. It was the way, it was the way that when I left, I realised that one of the, its eyes was twitching. I was like, bro, with that one. It's for glaucoma or diabetes or some <laughs> sort of shit you've given it to Lucy. Uh, what a note to end on and what a treat for anyone who's actually hung on all the way through this podcast right to the bitter end that just leaves us enough time to say goodbye from Maud of Nightmares Chanel Bye. any last words um, don't feed Lemus ham it makes you rabid bargain and Chris Neal the voice of Tatty Bojangles any last words um, eyes closed head first can't, can't lose That's that's all I've got that sounds like a birthing story. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Eyes closed, head first, can't lose. Yeah. That's how I live my life every day. The mantra of all obstetricians. <laughs> Jesus H, motherfucking Christ. Right, and finally, you've heard him before, Matt Durant, the voice of Belsia. Any last words? No pressure. Uh, I just want to say every time we say goodbye, I die a little. Right, good night. And we're going to see you next week. We'll be back with the storyline. You'll find out what happens in the second part of the courtroom drama. But thank you very much for joining us, for sticking with us. We've taken some twists, we've taken some turns. There's been jokes, there's been some pretty serious bits, and uh, it's been a pleasure. So, uh, Chris, what's our tagline? Um,. This is goodbye from Adventurers Anonymous, the the home of uh, improvised fantasy fucknuggetry. That's a level of energy you can depend on. Good night, people, and we'll see you next week. We love you.